Hello, everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I'm Benjamin Moses, the director of technology, and I'm here with Stephen Lamarca, AMT's technology analyst. Amazing, Steve. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, I had you know had fun weekend watching Le Mans. Le Mans. Didn't watch it the entire time. Yeah, the, uh, the to be to to be clear, the twenty four hours of Le Mans. <laughs> it's a long race. Yes, tell me more about this race. So first off, let's take care of pronunciation. It is technically Le Mans, but that's the French like purest pronunciation. Uh, a lot of Americans, well, the few Americans that actually do watch the race and more should, uh, they will call it Le Mans. <laughs> um, and Jay Leno has gone on record saying that, you know, the best, you know, if you say it the perfect French way, right. you sound too much like a snob <laughs> and you don't want to sound too French, especially in America. Uh, but also you don't want to really ruin and, and, and the beauty that is that French race and right. the French heritage behind it. So you don't want to call it Le Mans either. <laughs> and so Jay Leno has gone on record. You should, to, to, to be right in the middle, you should just call it Le, Le Mans. Le Mans. That's fair. Um, but so, uh, it is a it is so, a 24 hour long race. Right. So it's time duration for and they started Saturday morning yeah. and Sunday morning. Saturday. It's so I know we're in August um, and the, the schedule has shifted last year. It shifted from the second weekend of June, which yep. is traditionally the second weekend of June, um, uh, 9 a.m., well, excuse me, 3 p.m. Saturday. I'm just used to American time. Yep. Uh, well, East Coast time. But 3 p.m. Saturday afternoon to 3 p.m. Sunday afternoon. That's amazing. And the the goal is, you know, bring your car. and Well, traditionally, bring your car. See how far, how many laps you can throw down right. in 24 hours. Yep. And it's evolved. It was, it's, it was the 89th running of uh, the 24 hours of Le Mans. And, and to be clear, this is the pinnacle of racing. It is the pinnacle of racing. You know, so a race car driver that achieves the triple crown is a race car driver that has won an Indianapolis 500, mm -hmm. which is IndyCar racing, um, has won a Formula One Monaco Grand Prix. Monaco. Not won a Formula One championship, just the Monaco Grand Prix. Correct. That seems like, you know, the, of all of the races to win, that's the one you want to win because it's nobody's one. home turf. <laughs> right. It is an incredibly technical circuit. And just like Formula One, there's a lot of money and a lot of sketchy money. And that is the place to, <laughs> to really show off is that Monaco. That's fair. Um, and then the third race to, of the Triple Crown is the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Wow. And the cool thing about Le Mans, unlike the Indianapolis 500, unlike the Monaco Grand Prix, it is an entire race season <laughs> in one race. That's fair. In one weekend. One weekend. Um, and so there are. It's not one driver the whole time, right? They're rotating drivers right. for certain durations. Right. right? So, so each team has multiple cars. Like Formula One team has two cars. Sure. In Le Mans... You're allowed to have, well, some companies have in the past have gotten away with four cars, four cars. but technically they separated into two different sure. teams. But those cars are running the entire time. They're they are not running cars. the entire time. They're right. not backup cars. Right. Uh, and each car has three drivers. So, right. so drivers actually share a car. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, one car wins, but there's three drivers that, yep. that, you know, win a Rolex at the end of the race. Um, and, and all race car drivers will say, I'll never buy a Rolex. Right. The only way you'll ever see a race car driver wearing a Rolex is if they've won it. 
They'll or, never buy a Rolex. Or they're advertising for it. Yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> but I think. I think even Rolex as the company, they right. they stay true to that. They only get like brand ambassadors that oh, are like sure. Hollywood, sure. Uh, you know, heroes or and, whoever. And the track is is a decent sized track, so it's huge track. Right. So it is based the cent at the center of the track because you got to have grandstands and you got to have a paddock. Um, the, the 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 track is based off of the Bugatti circuit. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's called like the Circuit de la Bugatti or whatever, but it's based off of the Bugatti circuit. Um, Bugatti being a French uh, car company yep. with Italian background. Um, but uh, and currently Bugatti is owned by Volkswagen Group just to get that out there. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's based off of the Bugatti circuit, which is typically even though Bugatti's a car company, but the Bugatti circuit isn't really in any auto racing uh, um, any series series That's it's, it's used in in motorcycle racing a sure. lot it is seen as a motorcycle track even though it's named after a car company <laughs> but the Bugatti circuit is the base and the entire Le Mans uh, uh, racetrack is called the Circuit de la Sarth and I think it's eight it's it's almost nine miles it's like yep. eight and three quarter miles Um but it consists of like half the Bugatti circuit and rest is French French country yep. roads, which is so cool. Um, if you get to see like a, a ride along where the driver does like a, he's driving and he's describing what he's doing at each sta- at each stage. <gasps> yes, it's Alan an, McNish. Alan, it's an amazing experience. We'll see if we can include that link where Alan McNish did that when he was ri- uh, racing driving for um, Audi. And it's very interesting, like on these basically city roads that he's on or backcountry roads, you know, there's long straightaway, say like one or two mile long straightaway <laughs> where they have to cross over the crest of the road to get on the other side. Otherwise, they'll basically go on the flat spin because that side of the road is like terrible, yeah. right? So it's the, the, the car will um, uh, bottom out. Yeah. And while on like Formula One, they don't really care about that. If the car bottoms out, the car bottoms out right. and you see sparks and it's very dramatic and the fans love it. But over 24 hours, yep. that friction wears away at the bottom. And there's every race car, all these modern race cars with all these modern advanced materials still have like a plank of wood underneath <laughs> them because it's it's the regulation. Right. There's a plank of wood. And at the end of the race, they actually measure it to see how much is worn away. And if it's worn away too much um, – the car's disqualified. Right. So the uh, drivers cross over at a certain point because uh, it, it just wears away less yep. at that plank of wood. And it's really hard to like time that. And they have to do it at a certain point because if they do it anywhere else. Either the car will lift off. Yeah. Um, and you'll have a catastrophic loss of downforce. And there's some other great clips uh, on on the Internet of that. What happens there? It's not fun. Um, it Actually, that was a huge problem at Nürburgring the past yeah. few years. Yeah. Uh, and they've I think they're trying to like, land doing some landscaping to fix that right. because it is a safety concern, both for drivers and spectators. Um, and they don't want to repeat of uh what happened in the 1960s yep. at Le Mans. Well, let's get into who competed. In, uh, okay. Yeah. Thank you for cutting me off. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, so this year, um, the the big contenders were Corvette yep. uh, because it's their first year uh, premiering the C8 at uh, uh, Le Mans, which is Corvette's, of course, their first mid-engine car. Mm-hmm. And every other Race car has gone the way of mid-engine layout. And for the longest time, Corvette, the Corvette racing team was really dominant with their front engine rear wheel drive uh, layout. Right. And 
now that engine restrictions have really uh, put, you know, put the regulation down on them, they just figured if we need to stay, if we're going to stay competitive, we have to go mid engine. Sure, sure. And so that's why you see a lot of consumer cars and a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, People say, "Oh, that Chevy looks like a uh, Ferrari when you see it out on the road," and it's 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 because the racing teams like sure. we we have to be competitive. Even the Porsche 911, right, uh, is going mid engine, hmm. and will eventually be mid engine. Right, which the Porsche 911 is rear engine, so the engine is actually hanging out behind the rear axle yeah. on uh, on a traditional 911. Um, Porsche is slowly moving it Move in front of that, yeah. and it's going mid-engine like the Cayman. That's right. Um, but uh, yeah, Ferrari had it right for all these years. Um, <laughs> the one thing they got right, and, and technically Chevy did too with the Corvair, but you know it never saw Le Mans. Um, so the Corvette was a big contender, and it, at the top level of competition, um, the uh, is is the what used to be called the Le Mans prototype class, yep. LMP one and LMP two. Uh, but um, the Le Mans prototype class has since been renamed and re-established uh, as the hypercar class Be- ever since um, Volkswagen had to back out yep. because of Dieselgate. Uh, they just haven't been able to fund their racing teams. Right. So Toyota's essentially been competing by themselves. Sure. I mean, there's other cars there, but they're the fastest ones. Um, Are they running like a hybrid model? They're running hybrid. They've been companies have been using hybrids for a while now at at Le Mans uh, since before uh, Formula One, I think even. Um, But uh, and there's two things I want to hit on before we uh, transition some articles. One is the amount of uh, technology that trickles down from Le Mans racing. So much. There's a lot of seat uh, belts, headlights, windshield wipers. Disc brakes that all came from Le Mans. It and, didn't come from Formula One. No. Certainly didn't come from NASCAR. <laughs> um, it, it it came from Le Mans. Yep. And the other thing I I definitely recommend headlights. <laughs> uh, get, catching like a, a highlight um, clip like the one you sent me, Steve, of yeah. uh, the Le Mans race because you know we mentioned the CA, so that's basically a production car class that's prepped for racing. But also at the same track on the same time are these hypercars, basically race cars made just for the race. So yes. Some thirty some cars of, you know, a, a modified, uh, semi modified Porsche, nine eleven mm-hmm. that's on the on the road that they've prepped for racing to, these you know two million dollar race cars that you're on right. the same track at the same time competing it for twenty four hours throughout this entire time. So and it's, it's and it's awesome experience. because the this is the first year of the hypercar class and why that's such a big deal, especially to not just to race fans, but to to auto enthusiasts is because, of course, there's the technology trickle down, which right. is what we should be focusing on. Um, but, um, you know, the, the prototype class of, you know, the past decade was just essentially a Formula One car with a uh an enclosed cockpit right. and made for to run 24 hours. The hypercar class is they are slowly going to uh, put more regulations to say that we're going back to GT cars mm-hmm. essentially and or, or GTO, uh, Gran Turismo Amalgato, which is homologation cars, okay. meaning if if a car company is going to race this car at Le Mans, it needs to have a certain number of production models oh, cool. available to consumers. So we're going back to that, which means the next few years we are going to see some crazy consumer road legal cars uh, come out. Um, but uh, in the meantime, until Toyota has somebody somebody to compete with, the closest competition for them is um, 
SCG, Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus. Yep. Are you familiar with James Glickenhaus? Uh, no, not at all. I'm not either. Okay. <laughs> but apparently he's some famous Hollywood uh, uh, director gone producer for movies okay. and whatnot. But he's more famous. <laughs> Sadly, instead of being famous for the movies he was a part of, he's more famous for his amazing Ferrari collection. Oh, okay. Like he has one off Ferraris that Ferrari made for him That's... because he has the money for that. Yeah. He's so, got so much money. That he decided to make his own car company, and instead of making <laughs> consumer cars, he wants to race at the 24 hours. So it Definitely. sounds like Gene Haas right. with his NASCAR team sure. and then wanting to go Formula One. But he's This guy, tier. James Glickenhaus, was like, no, we're going to the, the pinnacle. We're going to Le Mans. And so he's in the class of people I hate. <laughs> yes, <Okay>. exactly. <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, he's he's going up against Toyota, which is wild. That's and wild. he didn't do bad. He came, he didn't come close, Sure, but he, he's fulfilling, he's fulfilling a dream of his, which yeah. is, must be awesome to be able to go for something like that. But that grand, sure. It's one thing to just own a Ferrari, <laughs> but you've got it. You're a collector that has made their own Ferrari based race team. Let's get in some articles, man. Yes. Okay. Let's. <laughs> the first one I got is from, uh, uh MIT Sloan. So you know it's going to be true. You know it's going to be great. Yeah. So it talks about uh, how small firms can harness the potential of collaborative robots. And I thought it was a good, um, good, uh, well-rounded article. It talks about some of the challenges that they have today and gets into a glimpse of where they want to see things get fixed for the future. Uh, and it comes out of their uh, MTech Next conference, which is very fascinating. And hopefully um, if things calm down a little bit, be able to do in person next year. Um, but some of the key elements that they talk about, one is um, – Kind of the implementation barrier. So one of the implementation barriers is, is cost. So the arm itself, you and I have talked about the reduction in cost of yes. arms. They've come come down a lot. When you particularly when you talk about collaborative robots now too. Certainly since 2018. Definitely. The barrier from okay, I can buy an arm. Now, what do you want it to do? <laughs> the, right. The cost of integration in, in this article talks about it's you know four times, four to five times the cost of the arm itself. So when you talk talk about the full package of Buying the arm, integrating it, buying all the end of arm tooling and getting the programming and everything involved with that type of automation. It's the article discussed. That's a fairly big hurdle for a lot of companies. I don't think that's that big of a hurdle. Well, if you can get four to five times, isn't that bad if you think about it? It's still a big hurdle. Don't get me wrong, but you got to justify the return on investment. That's the key is when you look at the, okay, say uh, arm costs $70,000. If your budget is seventy, a hundred thousand dollars, you're not going to cover the budget for an implementation. That's still less than half the cost of like a half million dollar CNC machine, sure, advanced sure. CNC machine, sure. And then you got to find somebody who can run it. You got to program it. You got to do all the tooling. It's very similar. And then you have to yeah. maintain it. So and that's not bad. It, it's more of setting expectations. If right. you if you go to a show and you say, "Oh, that arm is seventy thousand dollars." Well, you shouldn't budget for $70,000. You got to budget a little bit more than that. I right? get that. That's fair. I totally feel that. But you, we, we knew, well, I called it. I'm going to, I'm going to give myself the credit. I called it in 2018, walking through the IMTS, uh, student summit, yep. seeing, I'm not going to name the company, but their robot arms, their $70,000 robot arms, just standing there <laughs> on the show floor, unplugged, holding bags. Holding bags. It was a $70,000 <laughs> coat hanger. And I'm like, the price on those is going to go down. Yeah, absolutely. The other the, uh, area they talk about is um, the skills required to get the robot up and running. So sure. assuming you 
in this particular scenario, you bring in the robot, the someone, the integrator is setting, help you do that initial setup. But how do you maintain that in the future, right? Are you going to bring in that person to help you change, you know, setups and go to a different areas? And, and the quote uh, I have here is, robots are designed to be programmed by people who understand robots, which I think is is fair, right? But That's a good, that's a good quote. I mean, the analogy, too, for like a CNC machine, right? You, you're going to bring in a, a machinist yeah. that understands how to machine and cut apart. But I, I think the big takeaway from the article is that getting a robot up and running and maintaining the robot should be simpler. It should be a little more conversational or human-centric as opposed mm. to machine-centric. And I think that's where they're kind of headed. So, um, you know, in the future, what they're talking about is uh, the role of humans, not just program, r- programming a robot, amending it, and letting it run open loop. The human is at the center of the innovation process is really key. So they're talking about in the future, right? The human is providing the creativity, providing the value of what humans provide in and decision making and, uh, you know, helping map out a process where the robotic arm is the path to implementation for that robot is quicker. Yeah. It's fine. It's a, it's a great, very thought provoking article. I don't necessarily agree with it, but it does. It's nice to hear, um, another side of the story. Agreed. You know, What's your article on, uh, Steve? The next article I got, I know we're done with the Olympics. It's been done. We've already talked about the Olympics to the past two episodes. Right. But um, last week, there was a lot of chatter going on, and, and I'm sure you've got something to say about it, and I look forward to hearing about it. But uh, Boston Dynamics yep. showed off one of their still pre-production humanoid robots to, to go on the market alongside Spot. Right. And... Um, they're basically showing it off, not doing dancing, but actual like parkour and like <laughs> gymnastics stuff. And what's really cool about it, and the reason why I mentioned uh, uh, the Olympics is Boston Dynamics is going after like Simone Biles <laughs> with what their robot can do. Sure. So, you know, she's at the top of her class. Correct. So much so that they're not, they're like giving her. a a calculated disadvantage (laughs) so other Olympians that aren't as good as her can be competitive with her, which is, I won't get into that, but um, it's just cool that obviously she's the very best of the best. And Boston Dynamics recognizes that and they're like, we're going to design our humanoid robot to be as good as her, to do what she can do. And I think it's great. There's two sides of that. One is, I really hate seeing the video of that <laughs> robot doing parkour through a American Ninja Warrior uh, yeah. chorus. It, it it just it's just clickbait and just more YouTube right. videos. For it me. absolutely is. But the fact that you know it's the combination of picking uh, you know top tier athletic capability and saying we can integrate that into a robot that's very fascinating to me. And you know seeing how agile the robot is and it's not. You know, so I was watching a DARPA challenge uh, from, I would say, like four or five years ago of they wanted a humanoid type robot to go into like caves and walk a course and get through, right. um, you know, like an obstacle course. Yes. Military. Military course. Military right. style. Well, correct. And the number of robots that just took one step and fell was like 80% of the robots that didn't yeah. make it. And here we are, you know, so a co- not that long ago. Uh, not that long of a time where this robot is running an obstacle course that if if you were to put them on a green screen or put a green screen on this robot and put like a human uh, uh, visual on top of it, it would look like a human running the course, right? It's very, yeah. very fluid, very natural. 
uh, type of jumps and absorption of loads and kind of moving from step to step. So it is, I'm torn by, by the, how annoying the video is, but I'm also yeah. fascinated by how quickly we've accelerated from, you know, the first implementation of a human robot trying to get somewhere. Right. Well, I mean, they clearly learned something from spot and Correct. they were like, people want to see it being implemented, right. which is right. really cool because, you know, to, to shift gears a little bit, Bob, I'm going to come back. They're one of the, another use case that they've, they're starting to advertise for spot is apparently spot is the, the, the robot dog is like the way to automate, um, not landscaping, what is it when, uh, you know, there's like civil engineers, like construction people surveying, have surveying. Yeah. Yeah. Like spot. Apparently that is the way to automate surveying That's cool. That's uh, land yeah. and stuff like that, which is really cool. Yeah. But uh, I feel like when it comes to cutting edge technology, not just manufacturing technology, and you really want to sell it to industry, there's two ways to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. Apply it to some sort of like military sure. task. Um, which is what what you just touched on, or the other way to do it is motorsport. Okay, you know the yeah. the very highest competition. Mm -hmm. Like you know, what's how, how fast does a robot car go around a track, and does it compete with like Formula One drivers yep. or uh, or at a Le Mans something like that? But uh, you can't uh, you can't do that with a humanoid robot, at least not yet. Right. So what's the other way to apply it to competition? The Olympics. Sure. It's the highest yeah. form of human competition. Yeah. So, and they're going for Simone Biles. And I think it's great. That's fascinating. It's really cool. I'm glad you're keeping track of this. <laughs> it's, it's honestly, I'm not. It's just blowing yeah, up my feed right now. It is. And that's part of my irritating part. Yes, I get that. All right. I got one from NVIDIA and USC researchers demonstrate autonomous robot cutting. So we're doubling down on robotics today, but this is a... This is a interesting direction on based on the title and the image that they have. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a digital simulation of a robotic arm trying to cut a um, a piece of fruit or cut a cut an object. Nice. Uh, so it's uh, let's see, ro robotic cutting of soft materials is critical for applications such as food processing, uh, household automation, and surgical manipulation. Um, and it talks about different uh, simulators. So. There's value in calibrating the simulation based on uh, parameters and optimizing controllers. So what they want to do is basically get as close as they can through the digital simulation and build robust tools and processes that they can say that this is achievable in the future, in the, in the real world. Okay. Uh, so they get into some fairly detailed finite element models. Um, like cutting taters? Cutting taters. You know, crack propagation. That <laughs> That's very, very difficult. You know, I remember... Um, a project uh, back at Eden we did for the military, and they had a question of if if a if a, a crack existed on your object on your part that you're designing, how big of a crack was detrimental to your part? Mm. Are, are you supposed to answer that question until you get into okay? Now I've got to try and model this flaw on a part, and then apply some loads to it and see does that crack uh, crack propagate? Uh, so they're taking the kind of opposite approach of I've got a cut now I need it to propagate. So they're trying to simulate what the cut looks like and um you know and what forces need to be driven back to um the uh the robotic arm to understand that it is cutting properly and things like that so it's it's a very interesting look at um and the problems that they face with um you know deformable instructive uh, finite element analysis mm -hmm. and connecting the back to the you know the closed loop of the robotic arm to make sure it's uh cutting properly 
So, and it's an interesting look of kind of the, the challenges that they also face of, this is a very, very complex mathematical model. That's, that's all a oh my God, finite yeah. elemental model is, right? They're, they're taking small shapes and simulating springs, basically, and running that a billion different uh, set of uh, springs over this entire model that looks like a potato. And then they're trying to cut in between these two shapes. So they're solving several different problems at the same time. So it's a lot of processing power, a lot of uh, modeling um, th- uh, problems. And, you know, you define a mesh of your uh, object and you try and cut through that. So it's it's very, very interesting. A lot of different problems to be solved in that. Scenario. I think in the next week, you know what's awesome? We can do this here at AMT. So I think. You cut a potato at AMT? Yes. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm going to, I think, give me two weeks. Two weeks. I'm going to get the. That end effector finally installed on our X arm. Okay. Um, I'm going to get it to hold the end effector, the gripper, to hold one of my kitchen knives. And I'm going to try to cut a tater with it. Let's not get to a sharp knife right away. We should not. You're right. (laughs) I think you're right. That's a good idea. I didn't think that through. Let's let's make that stage 10. Step one. Maybe butter knife. Maybe mash a tater first. Maybe. Okay. All right. If we're on Thanksgiving, we'll get to that. No, you can always have mashed potatoes. All right. My final article I'm going to take over here. Um, Some Canadian scientists. This is from 3dprintingindustry.com. Some Canadian scientists uh, successfully slash ceramic 3D printing costs by 95%. That's cool. Using a new approach. I don't know how new it is, but it's new to me at least because (laughs) – I hadn't heard about it before, but it also doesn't sound like something that came out like recently. Right. But anyway, um, Palmer derived ceramics. Are you familiar with those? Not too much now. So apparently it's basically like taking um, the, the way they're doing it is they start with uh, three additive material mm-hmm. like uh, Palmer filaments. Okay. But this fancy polymer filament, which apparently isn't that fancy, but just nobody's done it before, um, has ceramics in it. Okay. So the 3D printer uses the the polymer filament to print a part. And then once the part's done, you take that part out, you throw it in the oven or a kiln. Sure. And uh, you bake it and voila, now it's a ceramic <laughs> part. And That seems too easy. It's so cool. <laughs> But now it's so much easier to print ceramic. <laughs> you know, that, they just, it, it's like, you know, those social media videos where that guy uh, on like TikTok or whatever sure. takes all these like fancy and complicated ways of people doing <laughs> things and shows you so, uh, so a much simple way simpler to way yep. to do it. This, these Canadian scientists just dunked on the industry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad Canada came through. That's, that's oh, impressive. Canada. I do like the idea of, so uh, the next article I have has to do with the high temperature alloys. and But so I, I feel like ceramics are underutilized in our, you know, a lot of applications, right? Yeah, I have a ceramic mug. Ceramics are known for their heat resistance, right? So being yeah. able to coat objects or, in this case, make special objects of out of ceramics that are yeah. a little more robust, that's probably stronger. And since they're doing, you know, you could do, I'll call it alloying, but, you know, embed other uh, elements in that ceramic matrix. Ceramet. Yeah. Cerametallic. Exactly. So now you can start doing different uh, uh, material compositions on in that ceramic. So I think this opens up a lot of opportunity. It That's is. Cool. That's fascinating. That is crazy how fast it's going. It's taking over the future, man. 
It is. I didn't want to say that before. But like. <laughs> All right. The next article I have, the last article I have, Steve, is uh, 3D printed parts can made from refractory metals can handle the heat. So this is an interesting look at, um, you know, the high temperature uh, applications. Back up. Yeah. Refractory metals. Refractory metals. So Are you, you prepared to define those? Oh, from the article. Yes, okay. I am. <laughs> so it, these are elements, metallic elements that have a melting point above 2200 degrees Celsius or 4000 degrees Fahrenheit if you're American. It's so hot. it's really hot, right? So, so if we look hot. at the, the sh- you know, the capability, so they're talking about melting at 4000 degrees, right? So if you back down to half of that, like 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, you assume you still have significant amount of strength of that material. So these are type of uh, materials that they're using. Melting um, point of uh, tungsten. It, these materials are used in alloying a lot. Um, you know, tungsten's a big one. Uh, no, not hot know, enough for tungsten. Not hot enough for tungsten. How much? How hot did you say uh, Celsius? 4,000. 4,000? No, that's you said 4,000 Fahrenheit. 2,200 Celsius. Okay. Melting point for tungsten is 3,422 Celsius or 6,192 Fahrenheit. Okay. So we got some ways to go for tungsten. Still but hot. Still hot. In that, in that group of materials. Still really hot. There's a bunch of materials I can't pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> you did it before we started recording though. You did a great job at I'd, pronouncing that one element that I refuse to even attempt. Ne- it, niobium. It's got a B and D right next to each other. <laughs> yep. No, I give up. That's, that's not neobium. But I mean, the, the approach that they're looking at is they've got these really, really interesting elements, right? So they, they're not alloying these parts. And so like Inconel, right? Can I see? Yeah, you can take a look. So it's like, so like heat resistant uh, super alloys. Sure. You know, they're, you know, they have a nickel base, but they're alloyed with a bunch of other materials. These, they're taking the straight material. <gasps> neobium is one. That's the one. But the one that you're thinking of that had the B and the D right next to each other, uh, Molly, I still, I'm not even, but, but I have heard people at Spacecom talk on this on how they, uh, have been able to print this, Mm -hmm. uh, because the, if you get it in powder form, you can print it. They just call it Molly. Okay. It's way too difficult. So they call it Molly. (laughs) So the applicant, so let's back up the, the end use that they're looking at is, yeah, um, uh, hyperjets, uh, like scramjets and, uh, you know, going above like Mach 5. So these are, you know, super high temperature applications, uh, high, high corrosive environments where, you know, they want to push the capabilities of their, um, uh, the materials that they're using. Um, and, you know, obviously turbines can obviously, uh, uh, benefit from this, right? So if you can, one, increase the temperature of your combustion, you get, uh, higher efficiency, uh, better um, environmental conditions, um, uh, and also the um, uh, then you know, don't have to worry about the uh, the blades themselves, right? Sure. So right now they're really really difficult to cool down. So you know one approach that they've been looking at is or even like you know turbocharger on an internal combustion engine. Yeah, exactly. You, the, the the fancier the metal you make that compressor or yep. or exhaust turbine out of, the less you need to worry about heat soak. Yep. Yep. And, and so they're talking about how difficult these materials are to process right now. Yeah. And the, what they're looking at to do, uh, experimenting with is uh, binder jetting oh, process. Look at that. Wow. Uh, so they have some very interesting um, parts that they're experimenting with. So they have an the article they show turbine a uh, turbine blade themselves. Um, and it's, it's a very fascinating approach to make it purely out of these elements where you don't have to alloy them. So I think it's a very, very mm-hmm. cool look at the future of you know, we want to go fast, right? That America, the whole world wants to travel <laughs> faster. Um, and the, that requires pushing our elements into hotter and hotter environments. So not only is the engine 
we want the engines to run faster, but now the tip of the aircraft itself is at a, a billion degrees Fahrenheit, right? Because you've yeah. got, um, you know, the friction of the air that you're moving so fast, right? So it's, yeah. you know, it, it, I think it's, this allows us to do a lot more cool things in the future. So it's cool. Especially if you're flying high like Branson and you're <laughs> coming back into the atmosphere. Yeah, you're not in space. You're just friction. flying high. Just flying high. <laughs> you're still suborbital. Suborbital. Doesn't count. He's sub. Steve, where can they find more info about us? You can find more info about us at amtonline.org slash resources. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Ben. Bye, everyone. Bye.